Good evening, and welcome back, and thank you, choir, for your surprise rendition. <laughs> I heard you weren't expecting that, but you did a great job, and we thank you. When the roll is called up yonder, I pray that all of us, young and old, will be there. It was very exciting. Heard this morning <clears throat> that uh, little Grace Bialy, uh with her mom last night, asked the Lord to save her and uh, put her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one more. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Well, um, after this morning's meeting, uh, Jason Escalona let me know that uh, he had this software on his computer that actually helps you kind of go three-dimensional to take a pass from the outer courtyard into the holy place that we were looking at this morning. So um, if technology will continue to cooperate, we'll just take a look for a moment at what we talked about this morning. This is over on the right-hand side, you see the gate. <clears throat> and there's three basic openings that you walk through coming into the tabernacle. This first one, the gate, would be the one here with the uh, purple, uh, the colored curtains there. And that's the only way into the courtyard. And then you would make your way here to the brazen altar. And that's where they would offer up the sacrifice animal <clears throat> for the uh, burnt offering and uh, the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that was, the smoke was ascending there all the time. And then as you would move on from there, you'd go uh, again inward a little bit further. And there you see the, the laver, the place where the, the priests would have their ceremonial washings. Again, picturing the cleansing work of our Lord and the Holy Spirit at purifying his people, at making us... Uh, fit to serve <clears throat> and being blameless before him. Not connected with salvation, mind you, but it is a cleansing that the Lord does in the lives. And so the priests would go on from there, having been through this process of cleansing, and would go through this curtain, which we would call the door, uh, into the sanctuary, the holy place. And as he would go inside here, again, this would be very dark were it not for the golden lampstand which would be there but as we talked about this morning the the door behind you the curtain there as well as the veil at the other side would be colored and even you'd see some of those same colors again on the covering overhead because they would be draped over those walls after the walls were dropped into their sockets but the walls were plated with gold and so with those uh if you go to the left there jason with that uh golden lampstand burning with those seven lamps atop of it uh, it would reflect off of that gold and brighten the place enough for the priest to carry on the work that he was called to do there in that otherwise dark place. But the light, speaking again of Christ and his ministry of, of um, <clears throat> uh, revealing unto us himself, spiritual truth. And uh, there is the priest here refilling the oil, uh, one of his two jobs, to trim the wicks and to uh, refill the oil there at the lampstand. Again, a picture of the work that uh, uh, the Lord would, would do in our lives as we seek to draw near in that private place uh, <clears throat> where before him he ministers to us with the light of his presence in the word. And then again, on the right-hand side, if you uh, go to the other side, which would be the north side of this uh, holy place, you see the priest now tending to what we're going to talk about tonight, the table of showbread. And of course, we don't have that I know of, an exact picture. And so this is one artist's rendition of that, and he's uh, tending to that there. And, um, and then as we go back towards the back veil, further in, uh, the Lord told them to place this altar of incense before the veil. And this veil is the last covering. There's the altar right there. 
uh, before you'd go into the most holy place, the holiest of all, where would be the, um, there you go, the Ark of the Covenant, where God would dwell and his glory rested upon that. And that's when you see that big cloud and the pillar of fire over the tabernacle. It's, it's resting over the Ark of the Covenant in which are um, the Ten Commandments, the bowl, golden bowl of manna, and Aaron's budded rod. But on the top is the mercy seat where uh, uh, it says he would there meet with his people to commune with them. And that's where the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat uh, to appease the holiness of God. And so, uh, but <clears throat> the interesting thing is, uh, well, we'll talk more about that, I suppose, after Thomas Wheeler would get to the Ark of the Covenant. So, We'll leave that for someone to discuss when they get there, I suppose. Let's go back out to the holy place. And we're going to read this evening from Exodus chapter 25. And now we're going to go to verse 23. This morning I made the, uh, the mistake of starting with verse 23, because that's where I had my, my pages marked. Uh, and <clears throat> perhaps you have noticed that we seem to be going backwards, right? We went to chapter 29, and now we come back to 20. Uh, five, and we're moving backwards in the chapter. And that is because as God revealed this pattern to Moses, as he clearly said several times, right, make it according to the pattern which I showed you on the mountain. Um, he started with that most holy place where the presence of God dwelt, and he moved from there towards where the people were. But of course, as we come into the tabernacle, and as we want to understand how it is that we approach this holy and righteous God, it's all in reverse, right? We start where we are, out there in the outer courtyard. Of course, I guess before that, outside the courtyard, just beholding from a distance the, the, the presence and the glory of God, but wanting to draw near. <clears throat> and so how do we draw near? That's what we've been talking about because God would like to dwell with us. And uh, <clears throat> having said that, then why don't we come to where we're going to be tonight, looking at the table of showbread first at Exodus 25, starting in verse 23. And it says, You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around it. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring, and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. <clears throat> and then we're going to jump forward just a little bit to... Um, well, we're going to go back to Leviticus 24, to the same chapter we were in this morning, reading about the oil and how Aaron would tend to the, the wicks and the lamps. But this time, Leviticus chapter 24, picking up in verse 5 through 9. And that reads, And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread 
for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord, made by fire, by a perpetual statute. And we'll stop right there for now, and let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time in his word together this evening. Father, we again would just say thank you for revealing yourself to us. Romans chapter 1 tells us that as we look at the universe in this physical realm around us, we can see your eternal power and Godhead. We can sense your greatness and the fact that we are so much less than you and that we are accountable to you and must indeed somehow uh, 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 please you. And yet we find ourselves unpleasing because of our sin, separated because of our sin. And yet, Lord, if it was not for your word, all we would know is that we are doomed and that we are so much inferior to yourself. And yet you have chosen to show us how you would transcend into our very lives by sending your son to become one of us, that even as these instruments show, as they're part wood and part gold, a mixture of this corruptible with an incorruptible thing. And um, <clears throat> Lord, we just ask that you would help us to understand the greatness of who you are, the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the ministry that he carries on in us and for us day by day, and that you would help us to truly, as the Hebrew writer says, to draw near with courage, with boldness, to come near into your presence, that we may indeed find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Father, we would pray for those who are not amongst us tonight, who would like to be here but can't because of physical infirmities. And Father, there are trials and tribulations coming their way, and we just ask that you would minister to them. We pray especially for those with doctor's appointments tomorrow. I think of Mrs. Turkel and um, uh, Mrs. Grace in particular, that uh, you would um, uh, help the doctors to, to be able to, uh, uh, to do their work with accuracy and to be able to help them into uh, better health. But in this time, Lord, as we open your word, we would once again ask you to prepare our hearts to receive it, that we might have the response you are looking for, that we might please you and bring honor and glory to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay. So as we come to this table, <clears throat> let me just fast forward here. Um, we have the entrance into the courtyard and now into the actual sanctuary. And I, <clears throat> I meant to read at some point just the reminder of Hebrews that th this really is not just a random application spiritualizing the text, but Hebrews would tell us that there is a difference between that old covenant and the new covenant in which we are under today. And in Hebrews chapter 9, it makes that comparison very clear <clears throat> because there is a, a, a correlation and yet there is... There's, a, there's a, a similarity as well as a contrast. And he says in Hebrews 9, Indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine ver service and, earthly, and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, and this is what he's talking about, this, this tabernacle that was prepared here on earth. And he says the first part, which would be this first room, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, the holy place, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, where the Ark of the Covenant would be. 
which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But then move on, look at what he says in verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, and with with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, and not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So it tells us very clearly then that Christ was coming. He didn't have the right to enter into this place here on the earthly tabernacle because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a priest. But see, he became a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us, and because he enters into a whole different order of priesthood and he goes into a totally different tabernacle, the one in the heavenly realm. And this one just pictures that for us. And so the interesting thing is everything about it we see fulfilled in Christ. Here the priest is making the offering in the heavenly tabernacle, Christ himself is the priest. And what's the offering he brings but his own blood, having shed it on Calvary? And here we have all these different animals and, and furniture and all these things just to try to picture all the greatness and glory that is wrapped up in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> that is why, again, we're studying this. And uh, perhaps I'm preaching to the choir. You're here because you want to draw near to the Lord. And you've probably heard these things before. But let us remind ourselves as we go along. Exodus 25, as we come now into that place with the table of showbread notice the difference now in the rendering here <clears throat> it says that you shall make a table of acacia wood now it's interesting to me as you look at different translations some of these various species of plants and herbs and animals that we have no idea exactly some of these animals don't exist anymore and so it's it's somewhat of a can I say guess as to which animal sometimes they're talking about whether it's a badger or a beaver skin or, you know, different things like that. But um, acacia wood <clears throat> is, uh, I think some of them say shatim, right? And, uh, but the thing is, that they, as it's translated here, acacia wood, uh, the writers of the New King James believe that's the, the particular tree that they were talking about, is it's supposed to be a very hard, durable, or incorruptible wood. Although it's very earthy, it's, you, you see the brown color, the, the typical uh, nature of wood. It is burn up, burnable and all that, but it's, it's a very hard, durable, incorruptible wood, which, which really uh, some people suppose, well, they probably chose that because it would picture for us the incorruptible humanity of Christ uh, because that's what he took on when he came into this world was humanity. But it, it, that was not his only nature, right? It tells us in verse 24, you shall overlay it with pure gold. And again, we see the dual nature of our Savior pictured in this piece of furniture uh, with the, both the wood and the gold overlay over it. And everything about it was covered with gold. Now, the interesting thing about this is um, its, its description of its, of its dimensions and all. Okay, it says two cubits in length, which I believe is about three feet long if it's eight, an 18-inch cubit. I know there's some arguments about exact size. Um, and only one cubit wide, which would be about 18 inches, and then a cubit and a half its height. So 9 plus 18, we've got 29, 27 inches, right? <clears throat> and um, anyway, so it's not a large table, but it is there, and it is, we'll talk about its purpose in just a moment, but okay. 
as it describes its very construction, let's go back to its construction. It says here that you shall make a molding of gold all around it. And then it says you shall make a frame of a handbreadth all around it and shall make a gold molding for the frame all around that. So really it's got two moldings as it goes around. And I think I've heard it described as two crown moldings. And the interesting thing to me about that is our Christ is associated with two crowns, isn't he? He was given a crown of thorns when he was here the first time. When he suffered, as is pictured on that brazen altar outside, for our sins. Um, <clears throat> but there's a second crown, again, that he has received now that he has ascended into glory. And it is a golden crown. I mean, it, well, he's crowned with glory and honor, the scriptures say. And uh, he's already been crowned with that. And so there are two crown moldings around here. And I don't see necessarily two here, but... It says, at the edges of the table, they'll make a molding, and then there's to be a border of a handbreadth around it. And, <clears throat> of course, it doesn't exactly tell us the meaning of the handbreadth, but someone has suggested this, and I thought it was pretty neat. Because you talk about two moldings and a handbreadth frame to be able to keep this bread on the table. And um, you say, well, okay, before I even get there, it's holding this bread, 12 loaves. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why 12 loaves? Well, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and they were all represented there in the presence of the Lord. And the only reason that you or I or the Israelites and anyone could be there in this place in the presence of the Lord is if <clears throat> the Lord Jesus was the one who was holding us up. And to keep them from falling off, they have these, not just one molding, but two crown moldings and a border of a, a frame of a handbreadth. And so someone has suggested, you remember the passage in John chapter 10, where our Lord Jesus was speaking to his disciples and talking about the security that they have in him. <clears throat> and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And it's been suggested that perhaps it's just another picture as we realize in the, in the fulfillment of Christ of how he keeps us from falling and being snatched out of his hand and his Father, and, but also his Father's hand. And we have a double protection to keep us in Christ. And um, again, that's not really clearly explained in this passage, but... Uh, it's interesting to note as he why was he why would he have two moldings with this hand breadth around it to keep the bread from falling off, especially when we consider the bread itself. Um, you know, part of the reason for the variations in the description of this thing is because it talks about the way that the bread is laid out there, and we tend to think of breads like a loaf, like we make them. Whereas if you look at a lot of the drawings, and this one being one, they're really just flat, almost like pancakes, cakes, <clears throat> as they're called in some uh, in, in Leviticus. Very easy to stack and, to, and, and to, just to keep on the table. They won't roll off as easily as some of the rolls uh, that you might have perhaps see in some pictures. But that's a very Western way to make bread. The Eastern way was to make it very much like these. And so that's probably more accurate to what they would have actually had. Um, okay, so he's got this molding around it. And then he says, you shall make for it four rings of gold so that they can carry it. And with these poles, also made of the acacia wood overlaid with gold, 
so that everywhere they go, this could be carried with them. Because as you know, when, when the Lord moved from place to place, they had to pick up all this stuff and carry it with them. And so uh, both the lampstand, the table of showbread, all the furniture could be carried wherever they went. But notice now it says there's some other dishes also. And I don't see them pictured here, but sometimes you'll see them pictured in other places. There are, it says you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. And you shall make them of pure gold. So what do they use these dishes and pans and pitchers and bowls for? Well, sir, perhaps some of them would be dishes to hold the, the, the loaves of bread, which it says, it tells us how those are to be laid out. So if you'll just, we're going to come back to Exodus, but we're going to jump back to Leviticus where we read already, talking about the showbread that would be on here. Notice this. Um, <clears throat> it says, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake now the fine flour not just the grinding of the of the flour originally from uh, the grain in which it was crushed from but they would beat this flour finer almost like we when we sift it to make our, uh, uh, the flour that we use today uh, uh, more refined um, he would have them do this before they make the cakes. And perhaps, as we're considering the picture of Christ in all these parts of the furniture, it would be good to, as a picture of the imperfection of Christ. You know, when you sometimes uh, uh, have flour and you go, to, you go to use it, if you were to dip your hand in there like they do, um, you would feel the grit and the, the, the coarseness of the texture. But, you know, there's no coarseness. There's no grit in Christ. He's a perfect Savior. And... Uh, so even the flower itself uh, would help remind us of the perfection of our Savior. And he says that they were to bake these loaves and then to lay them out. And now, <clears throat> there's some discrepancy I heard someone mentioning about these two rows. Now, these place them side by side in rows, and sometimes I see them stacked. And you wonder, well, which one is which? My understanding, and I haven't gotten to, to find the Hebrew words to say this, but they said the, 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 the idea of a row comes from the, the word really meaning some sort of an arrangement. And so he, he basically tells them to make two separate arrangements of these 12 cakes with uh, six on each side. And so we know that there's two separate arrangements, whether they're beside each other, stacked up on top, they're all there. That's the main thing we need to know is that um, they are there, not by accident, but placed there. And it says... <clears throat> And this is the part that I find interesting. Verse 7, Leviticus 24, 7, it says, And you shall put pure frankincense on each of these rows or arrangements of the loaves, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And so this showbread, it says, was to always be before the Lord as a perpetual statue. And so uh, uh, the significance of that would be, of course, of our Lord and Savior with the fragrant aroma of the frankincense being poured on that hot bread when it was brought in on the Sabbath, because that's what it tells us here in verse 8. Every Sabbath, the high priest, the, the priest would come in and set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And so they would bring them in on the Sabbath, and they would place these new loaves, and those pitchers and bowls and dishes would be used to pour out the frankincense onto the loaves. Now, I have no idea what that frankincense did to the taste of them, 
Um, but they would be there before the face of the Lord with this fragrant aroma for an entire week as a sweet uh, uh, aroma to the Lord with the incense on them. And then it says, after that week, when Aaron would return, it says in verse 9, that it shall be for Aaron and his sons that they shall eat that bread in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. And so Aaron and the other priests would be free to come in in that exchanging of the bread, and they would bring it to, it's still in a holy place, and they would eat it together uh, after it had been there as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you know, as I think about our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the idea of this whole tabernacle being a place where we come to minister to the Lord and to be before Him, we come and Christ as the light shines upon us. He provides the light for us to be able to function in the role that he's given to us. And part of that, we need to make sure that the wick is being trimmed and the oil is refilled so that he can let that light purify us and drive out the darkness. But see, also there's the bread that is eaten, that is pleasing to the Lord, that's been before his face. And as Christ is pictured in those loaves, he is our sustenance. John chapter 6 tells us that he is the bread from heaven, the bread of life. And he told his disciples that if they wanted to have any part with him, they must eat his body, right? And they, he, we know he wasn't really talking about his particular flesh, but, but his flesh would be given for us, but they needed to personally appropriate uh, what he was there to do in the flesh to themselves, like one would eat the bread. And it would give the, he would give them everlasting life. And as we today continue to meditate on his word and on Christ in fellowship with him, he sustains us. He is the bread, the food that we feed on as we meditate on him, as we spend time in his presence so that we have the strength that we need in order to live our Christian life. And so as we come in to minister before the Lord in that private place, again, I, th I believe we're seeing this work in our relationship with God as he dwells with us and us with him of needing to come to the place where we can feed on Christ. To, and, and this is what I believe, you know, uh, 2 Corinthians, it's interesting, talks about this in um, 1 Corinthians 6. Yes, there it is. Interesting, he says, you know, food is for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both of them. And now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And um, in this passage of us becoming holy before God and living a life of holiness, he says our body was not made to consume the sinful pleasures of this world. We were made for communion with God. And in a particular place like Corinth, where they were consumed by this particular kind of immorality, and it is one that creates a slavery and a bondage, he's telling us that our fellowship with him is meant to be the thing to empower us to break the bondage of sin. And you know, when we find ourselves wandering from Christ, when we find ourselves giving in to our sinful nature, falling back into our besetting sins, the sin that so easily ensnares us. 
You know what I find? It's because I have not been feeding on Christ. I haven't been trimming the wick. I haven't been really letting that light shine into my heart to do that refining work. And I'm trying to run on my energy. But we can't do it. Our bodies were made for the Lord in a unique way. We're made in his image so that we can fellowship with him. And it's what he desires. It's what he longs for with us. And as we come in, now we're talking about the high priest. Now, <clears throat> Christ himself <clears throat> uh, uh, um, is the one who makes us able to even be in that place. And, you know, it's a table that it's put on. You know, there, there's, there's no place to sit down in the tabernacle. There's, there's not really any flat surface to do things with, except, as we see, sprinkling of blood. And here, the putting of this sustaining bread on a table. It speaks of fellowship to us. When we talk about fellowshipping, we, we often include food, right, along with the sharing of our hearts and openness one with another in the things of the Lord, right? And I believe that really that's part of the picture here is that he wants to show us. He is there to uphold us, to keep us, to empower us with his own strength and energy, like eating and chewing the bread. And I th I, <clears throat> there are different words talk about eating, and one of them is just to take it in, but another one is to to chew and chew and chew, and that's what we need to do with Christ, is to, to linger there with him. And so, <clears throat> thus, we see the picture of the table of the showbread. And the bread that was upon it. Now, as <clears throat> the... Um, oh, yes, let me just say this. It said that Aaron and his sons... That was their portion that God had set aside for them. It was offered to the Lord. It had gone through the fire. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a sacrifice of fire to the Lord. But it said it was given as a perpetual statute to Aaron and his sons for the priests. And you know, I'll say this. It didn't say which priests were welcome or excluded. It was any priests who were holy, who were present, could partake of it, Right? So if you were there, if you were one of the, the, the priestly line who could come into the holy place, then you were free to partake as long as you were sanctified, holy. However, if for some reason you were defiled in some way, and there's many different things the Bible talks about that would defile the priest in that day, touching a dead person or, or some sort of wound or discharge from the body and all kinds of things, but that's what would keep someone from partaking of that bread if they otherwise had the right to do it and brothers and sisters we remind ourselves again we are priests in Christ and we are free to eat from that bread unless we are defiled unless we are unclean and so let us confess our sins that he who is faithful and just may forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness now getting on to the altar of incense <clears throat> after coming past these two items the two pieces of furniture, he would approach now the veil. Now it's interesting, <clears throat> as we read this passage now, coming back to Exodus chapter 30. He tells him, according to this altar of incense, you shall make an altar of burnt incense, I'm sorry, you shall make an altar to burn incense on, and you shall make it of acacia wood. Again, that same substance, perhaps picturing his humanity. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width, and it shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height, and its horns shall be of one piece with it. 
Now, looking at the picture of that, it's interesting to note, okay, um, the incense is going up, and it's before the, well, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. Let me just come back to this. <clears throat> Here's the altar. It's square. Now, the other altar outside, the brazen altar, was also square. But someone has mentioned, and I thought it was interesting to, to consider, it's a totally different size. It's square, it has horns. And so there's some various contrasts that we see on this altar that, that differentiates its purpose and work from the one on the altar outside. Yes, they both are square. They both have horns at the corners, speaking of the power and authority that goes with um, that place and the function of the altar. But this one was one-fifth the size, and someone has postulated that perhaps it has to do with the fact that uh, the work of Christ, being like five cubits wide and five, uh, square, his work was a much broad, more broad work at the bronze altar where he gave his life for our sin. Any person throughout the earth, that was a work for them. North, east, south, or west, they could come to that place. Christ's work was available to all, a very broad, wide ministry. He died one, died for all. However, this work, Inside the holy place is a work that our high priest does for those who belong to him. He is our advocate, not an advocate for the world. Those who belong to Christ, he is our, high he is our advocate so that when we sin, he goes because he is our propitiation to the Father to plead our case before him. He is the one who prays and ministers for us as our high priest in, in, the, in the heavenlies. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. This ministry is pictured as a much smaller work because Jesus said, small is the gate, narrow is the way. And there are few who are, who go that way to the road of life. And so we praise God that we have a place here. Although it is a smaller work, it is a work of Christ just the same. And um, it's available again to any of us who are saved and belong to the house of God. <clears throat> um, Okay, we said it was square. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. He has the power to keep us, to purify us, to pray for us, to, to minister to our every need. And so those horns speak of his power and authority in helping us. Not to save like the horns outside, but to sanctify and to keep us uh, once we are his. It says here that there is a molding. You know, <clears throat> uh, there was no golden crown offered Christ at the altar outside, as has already been noted, but here... There is a crown, a molding around this altar. And so he tells us, you shall overlay its top, verse 3, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold, and you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Again, the deity of Christ pictured perhaps in the gold and its uh, uh, dual nature here. The two rings of gold you shall make for it. Again, this idea is to be able to carry it with you wherever you go and praise God Wherever we go, our high priest is also with us, interceding for us. And I thank the Lord for that every day. I feel the need for it more and more as I go on in my years. <clears throat> but he says, you shall put it, verse 6, I like this, before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. And so it was placed there, right before the veil, now, you couldn't go through that veil. Once a year, the, only the high priest could go in there with the blood to sprinkle onto the mercy seat there at the, uh, um, uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. But right up to it, he would come to burn this incense on the altar, and it was to be right there before 
the ark. He says, put it before the veil because that's before the ark, right before the mercy seat where I will meet with you. And so what we see is this is the place where we commune with him in, in the most close encounter that you could have with God without being right there with him. And, uh, you know, although what we see in, in the time of Christ is that the veil was torn, right? Telling us that the, the veil that kept people away was torn so that we could have access. You know, we really are still in a place where we can't see him. And so it's interesting that that, that veil is, uh, <clears throat> it's torn, but it is still there to a certain extent. But we can see glimpses beyond and through it to be have, have access to the very presence of God. And... Um, so he tells them, I will meet with you there. And what is it that they do when they come to this altar? Well, it's an altar of incense to burn incense on. And so he tells us in verse 6 that Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. When Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And so um, <clears throat> what we see here is the prayers of the priest ascending to where they meet with God in that holy place. And how, when is he supposed to come to do that, to burn that incense, to offer up those prayers? Every morning, every evening, continually. And that's what we're told in the scriptures, right? Christ's example was that he arose every morning, early before the sunlight, to meet with the Father. We see him spending countless hours through the night, sometimes all night in the scriptures. And we're told, pray without ceasing. And so when we go into that private place, that, that holy place where we meet with God to have the light shine upon us and trim the wicks, there should be that ascending of the incense of our prayers to the Father. As we are there partaking of those loaves and feeding upon Christ, there should be prayers ascending continually. And those prayers are a perpetual incense, a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. And it should be continual. Now, here's an interesting thing. You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. It's not for that purpose. That was out at the other altar. This is strictly for that sweet-smelling incense to burn and to... While he trimmed the lamps, you know, when you snuff out that candle... To be able to trim the wick, you know, it would smoke and it would create a different kind of smell, right? But no, it would be overcome by that sweet-smelling savor uh, of the incense burning before the Lord. And you know, as we come in and we recognize the filth of sin that we've accumulated on our feet as we walk through this world, our, as our high priest, the Lord Jesus himself, intercedes for us, it overcomes that filth and that scent and so our Father still is still consumed with the sweet-smelling aroma of Jesus Christ. And I love that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where again, that's because I'm in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, uh, verse 14, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God, to God, 
the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not I, but Christ makes us sufficient. And again, in Ephesians 5, verse 2, we read, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The offering of Christ for you and for me produces for God a sweet-smelling aroma. And as we spend time in his presence, he, the very aroma of Christ, gets on us. So that when we've truly spent time with him, we should be everywhere we go, diffusing that aroma um, in every place. You know, he says not to produce, uh, as we go back to Leviticus, and it talks about that, that, um, is it Leviticus? It talks about the incense. Oh, no, it's right here in Exodus 30, I'm sorry. Uh, verse 34. He said, to take sweet spice, how do they make this incense? What is it? And again, we see a beautiful picture of Christ. It says to take sweet spices. There's all these different spices, four of them, stacti, anica, galbanum, and pure frankincense. And he says to mix them in equal amounts. You know, the balancing of the nature of Christ. It, when, they, they talk about the different personalities. Well, Jesus balanced them all perfectly. I don't know how you would try to say which one he was. You look at the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. He had them all. He was very balanced. And when you have this, this incense that's equal measures of these different spices, they make one new aroma that is perfectly balanced. And that's what a picture of our Savior, perfectly balanced. I know I'm not, and I pray that he will help me to become more like him. But we also see what? It says you will make a, an incense, a compound, according to the art of the perfumer, blending them together. So it's a balanced, uh, um, the incense is balanced. It's also been blended like a compound. In verse 36, you shall beat some of it very fine. It is beaten. And again, our Savior was beaten. It's by his stripes that we are healed. And it was that process of his beating that produced that sweet aroma that pleased the Father and accomplished our salvation. You could also say that it was beautiful. The Bible says that we should worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. And verse 36 and 37 says that this incense is holy for the Lord. And he says, don't anybody try to copy it for yourself. Don't say, oh, I like that smell. I'm going to make it myself. No, that's the aroma of Christ before God. And, and for us to go around pretending that we are him is blasphemy. We're not. And uh, we should not. And so he says, anyone who makes anything like it to smell like it will be cut off from his people. It's displeasing for the, to the Lord for us to pretend that we are, we are really like him when we're not. But to have that balance and that blend that only he is, but yet his aroma is upon us. And uh, <clears throat> there was one more B that I thought was interesting. Uh, and it was burned at the altar, and so it would ascend. And may God help us to be consumed as Christ was to please the Father that um, we would be like him more and more. And what we're going to learn as we come back to this the next time is that now that Christ has, his flesh was, torn, was, was rent on the cross, 
the access that we have truly is all the way in to the very presence of God. And may God give us the boldness to draw near into that true tabernacle, as the Israelite priests were welcome to do, as we see pictured here, but to commune with him to the, in the light of the, of the lampstand, the bread of the table, and the ascending of the, the prayers and the incense before the Lord, that we might commune with him and become more like him each and every day. Father, as we spend this time, I thank you for the patience of these dear ones as we consider Christ tonight. Certainly there's no end to all that could be say of our dear all that could be said of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus, and all that He has done for us, both at the altar outside in the courtyard where He was offered for our sin, but as He even now, as the high priest, prays for us, ministers to us with His light, as He sustains us with His very own self, as we partake of Him. Father, we pray that you would let His aroma be upon us, that we would be pleasing to you, that we would reflect him to the world. And so we commit this time to you, Lord. Help it not just to be a historical lesson, but a challenge to us to draw near. For you so long for it. You, you paid the ultimate price to make it possible. And help us not to despise this, this great inheritance that we have received, to be able to become priests of the living God, to minister before you, but then to go out into the world and to be your representative here day by day. I pray your blessing upon us as we part. Bring us back together more like Christ, smelling more of him and shining his light in this world. We pray it for his honor and glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.